Hello and welcome to the Gentleman's Journal podcast, our fortnightly interview show all about success, modern business and the lives of entrepreneurs. I'm Joe Bullmore, the editor of Gentleman's Journal, and I'm joined this afternoon by Gerald Ratner, the former CEO of the Ratner's Jewellery Empire and now a corporate public speaker. As a young man, Ratner worked his way up the ladder of his family company, eventually turning it into the biggest jewellery chain in the world by the end of the late 80s. And then, at the height of his powers, a single speech changed his fortune forever and sent his life and his business into a downward spiral that took many years to recover from. His story, and that infamous moment, is now the subject of business degrees the world over, and his name still trends on Twitter several times a year at moments of great corporate blunders. This is one of the most interesting episodes we've had in a while, I think. It's a true roller coaster of a story with a born entrepreneur whose colourful career has come to be defined by just a few words. With his famously deadpan sense of humour, Ratner talks us through the meteoric rise of the Ratner's group, the morning leading up to that speech, and why, if you want to get something done, it sometimes pays to impersonate a police officer. Enjoy. But before we begin, I'd love to tell you about the Clubhouse, a new kind of private members club brought to you by Gentleman's Journal. Clubhouse members get two bumper issues of Gentleman's Journal magazine delivered straight to their door, full of all those invaluable insights from the worlds of entrepreneurship, style, politics and culture that you'd expect, as well as exclusive deals with a range of partner brands, restaurants and hotels. Not to mention some lovely invitations to some very exciting events across the year. In fact, our podcast listeners, which is you... Now get 20% off a Clubhouse annual membership, meaning you'll get the full Gentleman's Journal experience for just under £48 a year, which sounds a bit like a bargain to me. Just enter the code POD20 at thegentlemansjournal.com slash club. That's P-O-D-20 at thegentlemansjournal.com slash club. Right, on with the podcast. Thanks very much, Gerald, for joining us on the Gentleman's Journal podcast. It's lovely to have you here. Well, it's very nice of you to ask me. How have you been this year? I feel like that question now carries a different weight than it usually would. How are you? Is suddenly a kind of profound yeah, question. It is. It is. Not as bad as I thought I would be if you'd have told me in advance that I wouldn't be doing any speeches, which is yeah. normally sort of 50 or 60 a year all around Europe, even some in America, which I love doing. Uh, putting aside the fact that there's, you know, I've lost my income because of it. Uh, I love meeting people and I love making people laugh, which of course is how I got into trouble in the first place. But <laughs> I really do enjoy doing my speeches and uh, that has gone. Yeah. So hopefully, I'm really looking forward to doing that in the autumn. Hopefully that will come back. I can't, you know, who knows? Um, I've got a website selling jewellery that's also another stream of income which has suffered because no because there's no marriages and weddings and stuff so financially it's been an absolute disaster um but i don't know why i'm not depressed (laughs) (laughs) i've been passing the day by doing a lot of cycling a lot of walking and a lot of uh, exercise and stuff Um, so you know it's not all bad. You're a big cyclist, aren't you? I read that you, you cycle 28 miles every day, almost without fail. Yes. I mean, I did this even before the pandemic. I've been doing this for the last 25 years. Uh, I've got a very fast road bike. And where I live in Cookham, there's fantastic rides, hilly rides all around places like Henley and Marlow. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, I love it. Beautiful. 
So let's let's start talking about your career. This is obviously an entrepreneurial podcast, and your career has had some of the most interesting entrepreneurial moments, perhaps of anyone we've had on it so far. At one point, you ran, I think it's fair to say, the biggest jewelers in the world with over 2,500 stores in your empire, and you're a phenomenally successful businessman. And then, of course, like all interesting entrepreneurs, you've also had your your low moments. But as I was researching this whole story arc, there were some things which I hadn't realized before, like how interesting your early days were, for example. What were you like growing up? You you quit school at 13. Is that true? Well, no, you weren't allowed to leave. I quit school from the day I started school. because <laughs> Well, actually, no, I passed my 11 plus, but yeah. then I went to grammar school, um, Hendon County Grammar, where I lived in Hendon. There were 33 in the class, which was a big sort of culture shock for me because I'd been in a class with only sort of eight or ten in a private wow. little nursery school and um, I don't know what happened to me but I know I came last out of the 33 um, and I really didn't understand anything that was going on and didn't participate really in anything so I was a complete disaster at school <laughs> and in those days you could be expelled for being stupid or whatever so they said, and if you come bottom again, they told my parents, uh, we'll expel you. Wow. On the grounds of stupidity. So they, uh, they did. So they expelled me. And then I went to this school that supposedly you could catch up a crammer. Yeah. Uh, where I spent all, all day in the betting shop. <laughs> and um, yeah, at 15, it was clear that I wasn't going to achieve anything at school. So my father said, you might as well just do what you want to do is work in the shop um serving customers and he had a Jewish business and that's what I did. What were your first jobs there? Was it literally in the stock room? Were you cleaning the loos and things like that? Well, I was put in um in charge of repairs, which is okay. the side of the biz a shop that nobody wants to be associated with. The most junior member would have to deal with repairs. You know, you'd really want to sell rings and stuff like that, but I was put in charge of repairs. Uh, and also as a gopher, so I had to keep getting picking up the stock from the warehouse and running down Oxford Street and bringing it back and that sort of stuff. So, wow. So, so this was how many stores were there at this point in the kind of family jewelry chain? There was about twenty five, thirty. And what was it like then? What, what kind of level of the market? Is there anything we can compare it to now? Where did it sit? Well, all the jewelers in those days believed that they had to be as prestigious as possible with marble right. fronts and chandeliers and very, very posh. So they're all pretty well, there was no sort of thing, discounting or aggressive marketing or anything like that. It was all very hush, hush and softly, softly and uh, mm. looking like a bank. So um, that's how jewellers were, you know. Yeah, of course. And, and from your point of view, were you always interested in jewellery from an aesthetic point of view or was it just the family business? Never been interested in jewellery to this day. I never was. That's of no interest to me, the jewellery. It was the it was the business. It was the shop. It was the selling. Yeah. It, uh, it was that side of it, yeah. I could have been selling anything. So at what age did you start to kind of get your teeth into the business and, and steer it in your own direction? When did you get some kind of authority, responsibility? Well, my father, unfortunately, at the age of uh, when I was about... 34 became very ill um he had a brain hemorrhage and um, it completely changed his personality mm. and whilst before he was incredibly 
successful and uh, had a fantastic way with the staff where they loved him and he looked after them and he was a very kind man. He became exactly the opposite. You know, he became very aggressive and uh, forgetful and just quite honestly, uh, he just couldn't run the business. So, uh, and, and the business went into loss. It was losing £350,000 that year and H. Samuel wanted to buy the business and I was going to lose my job. Um, so I felt, you know, I had to change things and take over. Um, so I persuaded my father to step aside, which was not an easy thing to do, I can tell you. Um, but um, I did that by telling him that the other directors wanted him to step aside, which was not exactly true, but I told the other directors that he wanted to step aside, so that worked. And uh, I took over and um, was faced with... Uh, a difficult situation because sales, you know, the, the business had lost its way and um, it was just uh, hemorrhaging cash. So that was, it was that about 1984-ish? Yeah, when exactly. you come in. So you're still a young man at that point. You're in your early 30s. Did it seem like a kind of, I don't know, a monumental task to take on? Did it seem like there was a lot to do? Or were you confident that you could turn it around? Well, yeah, I was quite young, 34, because I'd, but I had been in the business, remember, for, you know, about 15 years, yeah. not achieving very much. So um, I had a clear vision um, of what I wanted to do, which was sort of, it was a bit of a stuffy, old-fashioned type of shops with, you know, uh, expensive products. And I just felt that uh, I was looking at, at the time, the, the successful retailers like Dixon's and Next and Topshop, and they were really catering for the younger generation because the demographics were very different as they are today, whereas it was the 16 to 24s who had all the cash and they were, they were spending money on impulse, and we were not catering for them at all. So I um, was told, well, we had two shops that were doing particularly badly, one in Sunderland and one in Newcastle. Uh, and I asked the managers why, and they said, because there's this jeweller called Robert Anthony, a discount jeweller, which was unheard of. I know everybody's a discounter today, but it was unheard of, especially in the jewellery business. Yeah. So I went up there and um, he had queues outside his shops uh, before they even opened, which was unheard of because jewellers were sort of once-in-a-lifetime visits and uh, I thought, this is definitely the way to go. Forget all the expensive stuff and the posh diamond rings and the, and the managers with the three-piece suits and expensive prices and, um, you know, let's go for volume. And he had all sort of earrings at under £10, albeit gold and chains and stuff like that from window. And he was playing pop music and posters and sandwich boards and he was screaming discounts. And what he achieved was basically to get rid of the threshold barrier that young people uh, feared when they went near a jewellers. Yeah. So I copied him. Right. <laughs> but the fact was that we, Ratners, were still a well-known name in those days. And uh, it worked. we copied him, but we did it better than he did it because we had a better brand than he had and we had better shops and uh, we had better staff. So uh, it really worked for us. And we changed all the merchandise very quickly. Ch I changed the buyers, yeah. changed the look of the shops, uh, put posters up, made aggressive offers. And uh, it, it, the thing with retail that, you know, if you do make the changes, you can get instant results. And suddenly yeah. our sales from being, you know, dropping 20, 30% were up 20 or 30% uh, 
it was phenomenal. Yeah. And, uh, it was just great to see. So it was pretty much an overnight success. And by the time you were, I don't know, 35, 36, you're suddenly looking at a very, very different proposition. Is that fair to say? Yeah, because we were starting, suddenly went into profit. Uh, instead of losing 350,000, we were yeah. making a couple of million. But it was at that stage that um, we had H. Samuel in our sites that were three times our size. We only had, uh, by then I'd expanded to 150 shops, but H. Samuel had about 500 and in the 80s, you could do really what you like on the stock market. People loved somebody who was prepared to buy a business three times their size. Mm. So we made a takeover bid for H. Samuel uh, based on the fact that they were like we were, old-fashioned and they had no customers and we were teaming with customers. So the city were very much behind us. And it was quite an aggressive bid. Who were the kind of big characters on the high street at that point? Was, was Sir Philip Green or then Philip Green? on the scene yet? Were there big characters like that? No, he wasn't on the scene at all then. I mean, uh, it was George Davis um, who ran Next, brilliant retailer. Sir Ralph Halpern, who ran uh, Burton's, which was what Philip Green took over, the the Topshop. He created Topshop and everything, as far as I know. Um, Stanley Carms of Dixon's and um, Nita Roddick of... Uh, body shop yeah um so i wanted to be like them and, and became like them in the end terence conran although terence conran came unstuck when he took over british home stores yeah but uh, he was a big player as well so h samuel at one point obviously had wanted to buy you and tried to absorb you and in the end you you started to absorb them yeah was that a big kind of i don't know for for someone's ego and for your standing in the world that must have felt like a huge change of fortunes in a way it was phenomenal because of the fact that when we took over h samuel they were making four million pounds and within a year after instigating on what we'd instigated into ratners the sort of lower price product uh, with aggressive marketing and incentives for staff we took their profits from four million to 60 million in a year yeah Um, because the h samuel brand was much better than the ratners brand uh, because they were Britain's largest jewellers with bigger shops, phenomenal locations in the shopping malls. Yeah. So it worked much better in H. Samuel than it ever worked in Ratners. When you look back to that man now who was kind of taking over the high street in these huge strides, still a man in his 30s, what, what do you think when you think about your younger self? How do you feel towards that man now? It was the best time of my life because, you know, after being in that, working for my father for 15 years and really being in a very dull, dead-end job that was going nowhere, I suddenly was let loose (laughs) and uh, it worked (laughs) better than my wildest dreams. Yeah. Everything we touched turned to gold. It was just phenomenal. And we went to 50% of the jewellery market. By taking on Ernest Jones, we took over them. We took over Watch Switzerland, Leslie Davis, all the big names. Yeah. And uh, because they couldn't compete with us. And so at that point, our investors said, well, you can't, you, you can't grow anymore in the UK. You've reached the limit. You need to go to an, another country. So I looked at Europe, which was uh, I didn't like because it just it was a very fragmented industry and you you know where if you went to holland or if you went to france it's all different so but america uh, you could have one 
which is what appealed to me, like a McDonald's, which is what we did in Ratner's, a sort of McDonald's approach where you had one blueprint and you you repeated it right across the country. And that's what we did. And again, we were one of the few uh, British retailers to go to America and, and succeed. I mean, Marks and Spencer's failed, Tesco's failed. Mm. They all failed. But the reason we succeeded is basically because we weren't arrogant enough to transport our formula across the US, however successful we were here. We bought out partners. And, yeah. Yeah, we added our expertise, but we didn't. Uh, the shops in America look very different from the ones in, that we have in the UK. When I was researching this and looking at photos of you and news clippings from that period, you're always holding a cigar, you're wearing kind of black tie at, at great parties. Were you living the high life, do you think? Yeah, I was. I was. I had a helicopter. That was a waste of time. Uh, Why was that a waste of time? But the idea was to visit shops, but yeah. I didn't realise that I thought you could just land on top of a shop or something or land in the roundabout <laughs> nearby, but you had to land miles away in a field somewhere and then get a taxi and then... I had to drop my colleagues home and uh, then we had a bit of an accident um, where we chopped up a pole or something, wow. a road sign. So we got stuck. That was just, and it was just a nightmare. Um, and uh, everyone made fun of us. It was just stupid. Uh, but I had a plane. That was good. And a plane <laughs> in America. Uh, a private jet. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Jet, yeah. So, yes, I was. Not that I appreciated it, but I was uh, on the crest of a wave, yes. And what was your mentality there? Often when we hear about these people who are very successful, they can't enjoy it, as you say, because they're looking at the next big success or they're looking at their bigger competitors and they're never really very happy or satisfied. Do you think you were on that kind of treadmill? Yes, that's absolutely right. You, You do become sort of obsessed tunnel vision obsessed with uh, expanding the business beating mm. your competitors of course there's always going to be somebody that is going to be better than you you're never going to be the best yeah um, steve jobs or bill gates or jeff bezos but you know you even for them probably there's somebody that they think like okay. Elon musk is going to beat them so you're never going to get to number one uh and that's what you want you get you know power corrupts in a way and uh, everything goes by the wayside you all just want to you just just focus on business which is not healthy so um yeah I didn't really appreciate as much as I should have done this I did in the early stages but it got to a point that uh, um you just wanted more which is not healthy and then of course you've got the brokers the stock market always saying that you you know pushing your profit forecast so you always had to meet uh, bigger profit targets yeah. that put you under huge pressure the whole time because we were doubling our profits. I mean, we were we were going for two hundred million pound profit in nineteen ninety two, and that two hundred million pound then is probably about a billion today. And there's not a lot of retailers that are making anything like that even today. No, incredible times. I also read that you were very good friends with Charles Saatchi, who must have been just riding his own wave in advertising then. Was, is that were you friends? Yeah, we were we were very good friends and played snooker a lot. And I learned a lot from Charles. Basically, that you can uh, think big, <laughs> yeah, and do achieve whatever you want to achieve. Of course, he came unstuck because uh, he tried to buy the Midland Bank. So that's uh, again <laughs> an example of going just too far. 
deal too far. But he was a great, he was probably one of the most clever people that I've ever met. And, you know, he had, there was no sort of subtlety about him. (laughs) He'd just go for it, make up his mind and go, and he had balls of steel, nothing, uh, you know, it was, he had no fear whatsoever. I don't think in his DNA. Did you talk to him about marketing and branding and advertising? Did you ever lean on him for that? Yeah, yeah. He was our advertising agent. Oh, okay. There you go. But no, he was more, I was more inclined to listen to what he had to say about acquisitions. Yeah. He was incredibly acquisitive and, um, you know, he would buy businesses for half a billion pounds at the drop of a hat. So, you know, he always said to me that uh, there's the opportunity, take it. Don't be like 99.9% of the rest of the population. So you're riding this incredible wave. And then, of course, one of the most prestigious moments of your career, when you're speaking in front of many of the directors, I guess, who were your competitors, you you had this moment which I guess has come to define what happened since. What what, what do you remember from the day, if you're willing to talk about it? Well, I was, uh, yeah, I'd, be, I'd been talking about it for the last 30 years. And, <laughs> uh, I can't avoid it. Um I was invited to make a speech at the Albert Hall for the Institute of Directors. And as you say, it's very prestigious. Yeah. I was very honoured to be invited at the Albert Hall in front of 6,000 people. I arrived at the gate um, and I was greeted by a whole reception committee. But it turned out that that wasn't for me. I'd arrived too early, which I always do. (laughs) Uh, It was for President de Klerk of South Africa. Oh, fine. And that's why the politicians and royalty were all standing there. Anyway, so he, I listened to his speech, which was quite a big thing because he talked about ending apartheid yeah. and uh, that, you know, there was going to be no segregation anymore in South Africa and that we would drop our boycott and these cricketers would come over and bowl fast deliveries at our batsmen. And it was quite an important speech. Yeah. So what do you think made the headlines the next day? That, ending apartheid, ending segregation that went on for years, or Gerald making a joke about a sherry decanter? <laughs> yeah, uh, it seems like a bit, bit of bad luck there. Well, no, I don't blame anybody other than myself, but um, it was a dumb thing to say. But to have that reaction was totally ludicrous, to have yeah. uh, the headlines of the sun, the mirror, and here we are still talking about it 30 years later. Um, and it's the biggest corporate gaffe of all time. But um, it happened, and it it had a dreadful effect on the business that I'd achieved so much for in, in such a short time, yeah. so proud of, um, because suddenly we went into reverse instead of people queuing up and wanting to buy our stuff. And they really were queuing up. You should have seen the shots at Christmas. It was like a football crowd. Yeah, but the, the opposite was true. Everybody wanted their money back and sales declined dramatically mm. and instead of making hundred the 200 million pound profit uh, we lost 100 million and uh, I was I was chairman and chief executive I took on a chairman to help me deal with this and the result was that he actually fired me yeah uh, so it was the worst 18 months of my life if those seven years that I'd taken the business 
to the world's largest jewelers from you know to two and a half thousand shops were the best years the, the, these were the worst years in my life it there seems to me something i i said it was unlucky before but i really think there's something arbitrary about it because you'd made that speech several times before hadn't you with those same jokes in it is that right I'd make, I don't know about the speech, but I certainly made those jokes. Yeah. In fact, I, I said that we sell a pair of earrings for 99p, uh, which was cheaper than a prawn sandwich from Marks and Spencer's. But I originally said, but our earrings would last a lot longer than the prawn sandwich. But a journalist uh, from the Financial Times, she joked, no, Gerald, she said, Your, the prawn sandwich lasts longer than earrings. And everyone laughed and laughed. So I thought that was a good joke to put in. So I reversed it. And then um, that same journalist came up to my warehouse in H. Samuel in Birmingham and asked me about a sherry decanter, which we'd acquired one of their products when we bought H. Samuel. And it was very cheap. It was $12.99 for a sherry decanter, six glasses and a tray. I mean, that is, even in the 1980s, that's pretty cheap yeah. for all that. And she said to me, you know, how can you sell that for such a low price, twelve ninety nine? And I gave him an honest answer. I said, because it was crap. Um, because if you look at crystal, you know, real nice crystal in glasses is a lovely thing. If you look at back of our glass, something like that. So this was really, you know, churned out from the Far East as cheap as you could get. So, mm. but it, had, it was selling in H. Samuel. It was a good seller. Yeah. But obviously I shouldn't have said that, but it was an honest thing to say. She laughed her head off. She put it in the FT the next day. Everyone laughed. In fact, Goldman Sachs gave it to their uh, top salesman as a joke at the party at the end of the year, and it was a standing joke, and everyone took it the right way. So I threw that in as another joke. Um, but, of course, the mirror were out to get me because apparently I'd fired one of the uh, journalists' niece. In fact, I employed 27,000 people. I didn't even never met his niece, but apparently wow. she, he said he was going to get me because um, I'd fired his niece. Um, and that was, and, and they plastered right across the mirror. And then the sun changed their headline and they plastered right across the front page. Did anyone tell you not to make the jokes? Did anyone see the speech and say maybe not on this occasion? Or was it, was everyone pretty much thumbs up to it all? Well, my wife said, don't use the word crap at the eye. <laughs> but she, I had just been to Buckingham Palace two weeks before and made a speech in front of Princess Anne yeah. for a charity thing. And she told me then not to make some joke, which I've forgotten what it was, in front of Princess Anne. And I ignored her <laughs> and made it. And everyone laughed. It went down really well. So I didn't take any notice of that, unfortunately. When I watched that video clip back, it seems to me that there's a sense of kind of very English, ironic self-deprecation. You're not actually slagging off your your wares so much. You're making a joke at your own expense in a way because you're elevated to such an obvious position of power there. Do you see what I mean? So I think if you isolate them out in a headline, you're taking away a lot of the context. Do you think that's fair? Well, if you listen to the whole speech on YouTube, 27 minutes of it, it actually includes the line, we have achieved what we've achieved by selling high-quality products yeah. um, with high-quality staff. But there's one or two items that we, you know, that we do sell. Um, you know, you'd, I heard a, a singer, pop singer, saying that, you know, he's 
made about six or seven LPs, and there's one track on some LP which he thought was crap. Yeah. But nobody assumed that everything that he produced was crap. And, if, you know, we ran 5,000 lines, and we would not have got 50% of the market by selling crap because no. nobody's ever done that. You don't, don't achieve that. So, no. yeah, but there you go. I mean, the press are what they are. They're disingenuous. Um, there's no point in criticising them because um, they put in the paper what we want to read. And so if, any, if you blame anybody, you can blame ourselves. That's true. How did you try and contain it? Because as you say, the, the headlines were pretty much instant, weren't they? It was the next morning that the Mirror and the Sun, I think, had big blaring headlines. There was no social media, but yeah. we started putting adverts. We got people like Paul Gascoigne and celebrities to say how good our products were really and mm. if that didn't work at all i went on the terry wogan show <laughs> to try and um say that uh, it was a joke and that um apologized for it and try to explain about the whole debacle what that did was inform 50 percent of the population they even heard the jokes <laughs> made it worse everything you did made it worse basically yeah because what it did was just spread it because there's no social media. But the more I, I did things, more I broadcast things about it, the more coverage it had and more people thought about it. And it got worse and worse. Sales just started plummeting. And then they discovered that I owned H. Samuel and I owned Ernest Jones and, and loads of other stuff. And those shops started suffering and uh, mm. a nightmare. Was there a sense that it was just unfortunate timing as well? I think there was a kind of recession on at that point, wasn't there? Yeah. And I you were easy to paint as the face of, I don't know, corporate yeah, uncaringness. Absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. Because as you say, I'd made the joke in the 80s and everyone thought it was fun. Even The Sun had a column, Gerald's Gems, and he was known for making jokes and they put all those jokes in quite happily. Uh, but in 1991, there was a very bad recession. People couldn't pay their electricity bills. Just like the banking crisis, yeah. um, they, they tried to they, they pinned it on Fred Goodwin. It wasn't all his fault, no. <laughs> and uh, they pinned it on me. Yes, I was public enemy number one because um, it is a fact that if you make a joke when everybody's all merry and had a drink or two, like they did in like the eighties, everyone finds it funny. If you make a joke when everybody's got a hangover and miserable and they've just had some bad news, then it's not so funny. So it's a matter of timing. That's very, very true with all comedy. I yeah. was I was struck by a quote of yours that I read that said, what I said was completely stupid, but it wasn't illegal, which I think is a good point because as you say, with people like Fred Goodwin and many people in positions of corporate responsibility, they have done illegal things, and yet we don't still remember the genuine misdemeanors. We remember maybe your blunder more than that. Why do you think that is, that the genuine criminals now seem to be able to slide away most of the time? Yeah, I mean, I'm paired with people like Nick Leeson and Fred Goodwin and uh, people that have, uh, you know, broken the law, yeah. in a way, and, uh, which I object to. And, but, you know, that is Twitter. Every day there is about half a dozen references to doing a Ratner and always misquoting me, always saying that I said it about my jewellery, that my, all my jewellery was crap. Um, 
and that I went bust. None of that is true. It's quite mm-hmm. a serious thing I went bust because latterly I went back into the jewellery business online. You're not allowed to buy diamonds if you've gone bust. So it affected me um, in a negative way. So Twitter is is Twitter. Uh, and I say to myself, well, bring it on now because I do speeches about it. Yeah. Again, self-deprecating, saying that I came number one in the, the Sun's top 50 mistakes of all time and the fact that uh, I ended up owing the bank billion pounds and uh, all just self-deprecating myself because it gets a lot of laughs in a dinner after dinner speech, um, he's no good standing up there and saying, oh, you know, I've, had, I've been treated badly and I'm unlucky and I'm bitter and all that. Nobody's going to really find that very entertaining speech. Yeah. So that's what I do. And I'm, I love doing it. I probably love doing it more than I love running Ratners. And I've been doing it for 15 years. And I've been doing, as I say, 50 to 100 a year all over Europe, all over the UK. And, you know, not once... In all of those speeches that I've ever done, I've ever crossed anybody who's been anything but positive and pleasant. Mm. And not one person, yeah, everybody on Twitter is exactly the opposite. So, you know, when they met me, heard my story, um, they're not, they're just very supportive. I think that's sadly just the way Twitter is. It really brings out the worst in people and makes them rush to judgment, sadly. I would I wouldn't go on it at all if I were you, but maybe there's a kind of pride, an odd pride I don't know, in still being mentioned in some way. Well, no, the thing is that when I do do a speech, it does go on Twitter in a very yeah. positive way that they really enjoyed the speech. So I used to search yeah. for me uh, in relation to that um, as being sort of a bit nar- narcissistic, I suppose. But it's <laughs> nice to hear what people have to say. Your Naturally. But uh, now that I'm not doing any speeches, it's all just, you know, just just trolling, trolling, whatever. But anyway, (laughs) uh, you know, the fact is that because of it, I am better known than I would have been. So when I go up, let's say I'm doing a speech on Zoom on Friday in Sunderland, a lot of people there would have known who I was, which if you are a speaker, that is a huge plus. Yeah, uh, that you're well known rather than you're that nobody knows who the hell you are it gives you a big lift right from the beginning so you mentioned earlier about own, owing the bank a billion pounds and and the lowest moments what were the kind of the most difficult periods during the next few years and how i guess eventually did you start to pick yourself out from them well i was fired by the chairman as i said yeah and uh the publicity was carrying on, saying that it was unemployable. And uh, I didn't get a job, but it's true. I was just uh, spending a lot of time doing nothing, cycling, staying at home. And then I um, started realising that the one thing that was keeping me sane was the exercise, and I could see the benefit when everything else is shit the if you carry if you do exercise it actually cheers you up even though your life is shit uh so i could see the benefits and it was 1997 and uh, i there was no health club near where i lived in henley on thames 
So I uh, started to, even though I had no money, uh, I opened up a health club. I did this by actually uh, finding a site, putting it in solicitor's hands, even though I had no way of completing £750,000 that I needed to buy it. Mm. Um, but I offered memberships to people uh, saying, I'm going to open it in three months' time. And if you signed up, you could not have to pay the joining fee. And I put an advert in the Henley Standard. I got 800 people to sign up. And that that convinced the banks that it was a runner. So I got the finance, opened up the club, and sold it two and a half years later for four million pounds. Yeah. So um, that was my saviour, the, the, the health club. So there was a little bit of kind of, I suppose, cheek or trickery in that in that move with the bank. Did you need that kind of thing? Were you simply persona non grata with a bank manager because of your past failures? Did you need to be innovative in that way? Uh, I don't think so. I think that the fact was that if you just went to, yeah, I mean, I, there's a bit of that in it because I did go to the first bank and uh, he did say it was a stupid idea and coming from you, it's doubly stupid. So <laughs> uh, there was that negativity. Uh, and even when I got the 850 people signed up, I still went to 12 banks before they, it was the 12th bank oh, fair, fair agreed, enough. 11 before it still turned it down. Yeah. And apparently he only uh, agreed to it because his wife had signed up for it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good sign. So when you finally got that, that paycheck in your bank, you'd sold it a couple of years later for just under 4 million, as you say. Did it feel like some kind of vindication? Did you feel like you'd made it back again? I don't know about that, but it was nice to have four million pound in my bank because um, <laughs> for seven years I hadn't had anything in my bank. In fact, I'd had nothing but overdraft and debt. When been on holiday, I've been getting grief from my wife, quite rightly. Um, and it was a horrible seven years. And suddenly here I was, and I hadn't really earned anything even during the health club thing because I wasn't drawing any money out of that. Yeah. Uh, so suddenly here I was with money again and then we went on holiday we went skiing and it was just like the best holiday <laughs> better than any holiday I had when, in the 80s when I was a multi-millionaire yeah. I, re I really appreciated the fact that I could go back to those places um, expensive restaurants and order a nice bottle of red wine yeah. and um, I suppose it would be a bit like coming out of lockdown you know after not having or having all this taken away from you for such a long time. Yes. It was just great. Did you miss the the high life, the pace, the helicopters, the fast cars? Or did you realise very quickly that wasn't actually necessarily making you happy? I so didn't miss them. And, you know, I had a driver and I so preferred driving myself rather than sitting there listen yeah. to music that I wanted to listen to, not having to think about him driving me and so much preferred going on the underground for the first time around London rather than sitting in a Bentley, should have driven Bentley in the traffic. Yeah. So preferred just going out on easy jet to Portugal rather than going on my own jet. I just so preferred it and uh, appreciated it and uh, to do to this day. So you mentioned lockdown there, and obviously it's been an incredibly tough time for many entrepreneurs and anyone in any business, really, if we're honest, unless you're Jeff Bezos, as you say, who seems to have done okay out of it. But there must be people listening potentially who are in the depths of their own failure or despair. And I suspect this is the kind of thing you talk about in your speeches. But what advice 
do you have for them to help them kind of start to pick themselves out? Well, funny you should ask that. I've just written a book because I haven't been doing any speeches, which came, oh, perfect. Out. It came out uh, last month. Which is my second book. My first one was my autobiography. Yeah. Uh, this is called Reinvent Yourself, um, which is basically, I feel that there's a lot of people that will have to reinvent themselves after this. They won't be able to go back to what they were doing because the world would have changed. Right. And as, as much as we want to go back to what we were doing, those businesses might not exist or there might not be a market for them. And I think there was a bit of that going on anyway. There was a, you know, the job for life routine had gone out the window, unless you're in the police or something like that. Yeah. But certainly in the uh, private sector, people were on average moving jobs every 10 months. So it's very important to reinvent yourself. and. Uh, one of the things I say is that eight out of 10 new businesses fail. So don't start a new business, buy somebody else's. <laughs> okay. Because there'll be plenty of businesses around to buy. Um, and it's much better to do that because you don't have the crippling overheads. Uh, you've got all of their, you've got their fit. You know, if it's a nail bar, for instance, it's all fitted out. You've got yeah. the Asia, you've got the, the chairs, you've got the spa things to stick your feet in, you've got the sinks, you've got the shop front. You don't have to amortise the cost of that. Buy somebody. And also, you're not adding to the competition in that um, venue, in that, in that town. So we always preferred um, acquisition rather than organic growth. And on, on, on a personal level, I suppose, when you might not have the capital to do anything, let alone acquire someone else, how how do people start that reinvention journey? I mean, how do they even get the kind of self-esteem back, which must have been a big part of your loss? I guess your pride was hurt. I had no self-esteem yeah. and uh, believed everything that was said about me, that I was unemployable and useless and the poster boy for failure. So uh, it was only when my wife actually threatened to kick me out because I refused to work that I got out and opened that health club. Um, and it was... A, you know, it is difficult because people don't like to take risks, uh, especially when they're on, you know, when they're in a difficult situation and you've got a few, you know, they don't have a great amount of money and you don't even want to risk that. You want to hold on to what you've got. But business is about risk. Of course. Um, you have to take risks. And when you do take a risk and it comes off, it's a wonderful feeling. Yeah. And... Um, I think that uh, I started without anything. I was wiped out. I lost every penny. I, I, I am that health club without a penny by just blagging my way into getting people to believe that uh, I was, a, they still thought, I, they still do to this day, thought I was very rich and the club was going to be very lavish and expensive and all that sort of stuff and let them believe it. I mean, I, again, I didn't break any laws, but I certainly, um, you don't, achieve anything by playing cricket you know you you achieve things by playing baseball or whatever the american football is equivalent you know where you bash into people <laughs> uh, you don't stand on ceremony you're not polite i mean the other day my daughter was having a lot of aggravation with vodafone because she was getting ridiculous bills that were not her, that she was not responsible and we couldn't get anywhere we couldn't speak to vodafone they wouldn't deal with it so I phoned up the uh, chairman of Vodafone. Of course, he wouldn't come to the phone. But then I phoned again and I said, I'm chief 
Superintendent Roberts, and he came to the phone. And then I told him about my daughter, and then I told him who I was. And I think he was so relieved that I wasn't Chief Superintendent Roberts that he actually um, dealt with it, and he completely wiped the bill out. So that's not breaking the law. Well, it probably is actually impersonating a policeman, but I don't give a shit. (laughs) I don't give a shit about Vodafone and or or the police. Um, But that's the way I do things. Um, I don't, you know, you have to push to the limit sometimes you have to um bend the rules um not play by the you know there's a list of rules out there which i've broken every one of them do you still break the rules today or are you more of a i did i found a and i said i was superintendent roberts that's breaking the rules yeah. I, I suppose maybe in business do you still push the boundaries uh, you know i always did when before we bought h samuel we were offered a shop in worthing so none of us knew whether worthing was any good uh, whether it was worth opening there. So I phoned up H. Samuel and said, it's head office here, which was not technically a lie. It just wasn't their head office. <laughs> and uh, I said, I want to check your figures for last week. If you talk in an authoritative voice, they will uh, they will uh, be happy to uh, answer your questions. And uh, I found out how much they were taking, which was pretty good. And we decided to open up in Worthing because we could see that they were doing very well. So, yeah, I've always done that. I've always been a bit cheeky. I think uh, I advise anybody to do that. Um, if you want to, uh, business is like that in a way. You know, I've, I've looked at all the very successful businessmen from the past, Rupert Murdoch downwards, and they've always broken the rules. Absolutely. Sometimes a bit too much in his case, maybe. But that's well, another podcast. You know, he brought me down with the sun, but I still admire him. Did you know him personally at all? No. Uh, Robert Maxwell was the, uh, owned the mirror when they did the story. And I met him. Yeah. New book just come out. I just read it. Yeah. What do you think? Well, I don't believe anything that is said. I don't believe (laughs) just because that book says that he's a rogue and he, uh, I don't know. Nobody knows the facts about Robert Maxwell. Side I saw about Robert Maxwell was not that bad, to be honest with you. Um, so I, I don't accept and I never have done what I'm told. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, the people that I've spoken to who knew Robert Maxwell actually said that he didn't raid the pension fund, but because it was Lord, it was Lord Donahue or something that was in charge of the pension fund. So you couldn't have access. He, mm. he was the only person to give access. So I really don't know. Uh, but when I phoned up Robert Maxwell, well, I, um, because of all the bad publicity. Yeah. Of course, you get his son. Uh, you never get to speak to him. It's always his son that comes on, Kevin. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, he won't write about it anymore. And he didn't, in fairness to him. He stopped writing. But the son, unfortunately, carried on, <laughs> Kelvin <laughs> McKenzie. So you, you spend a lot of your time now doing these speeches, or you did, pre- yeah. pre-lockdown. Hopefully again in the autumn. We hope so. So what, what um, do people most often say to you at dinner afterwards or in the kind of Q&A sections, what feedback do you get and what are people most intrigued to know? They always say the same thing. They come up to me and say that I've been through a tremendous amount of grief lately. Mm. My bank foreclosed on me. My wife left me or lost all my money. And you've really cheered me up because you have shown me that 
it's not the end when you have a setback. If you can come back from where you've come back, then I can come back. Anybody can come back. Life is full of setbacks. And you meet somebody who hasn't had a setback and there's something missing from them, a certain amount of empathy or sympathy. To be part of the human race, you've had to have suffered. So it's a good thing and it cheers them up. Well, some of them are drunk when they come up and see me, but nevertheless, it doesn't matter. <laughs> Does that kind of thing in any way make it worth it? If, if there was a time machine now and you could go back to 1991 and stand up on that podium again, would you do it differently? Well, somebody, uh, when I did a speech once, um, I said, look, if we don't get a question because it's Q&As, can we plant a question? <laughs> and... Uh, it was the chairman of the company, and he said, what do you want me to ask? I said, ask me whether I regret saying what I said in 1991. So nobody asked the question. He got up and said, Mr. Ratner, do you regret saying what you said? And I said, that's the most stupid question that anybody's ever asked me. Of course I regret it. I lost everything. But then again, am I happier now? Yes. Do I prefer doing speeches than running a public company? Yes. Have I got enough money to be happy? Yes. Have I got a better family balance in my life yes um yes but i can't turn around and say i'm glad i said what i said because no. uh, today uh, ratner's is now called signet and it's still the world's largest jewelers in the world although i don't know if i want to be in retail at the moment before you go we we have a kind of set of questions we ask everyone mm-hmm. um which i hope you will be illuminating in their answers. So I want to ask you, what was the last piece of advice you gave someone? The last piece of advice I gave was to my dog. I told him to stop eating poo. That's very good advice for all of us, dogs or humans. What's your worst habit? Is the next one. My worst habit is smoking. I still, you said that you saw me smoking cigars. Cigars, yeah. And uh, I still smoke cigars um, because... I like cigars. Quite right. I hate me smoking cigars, but um, my father once t- said to me that tobacco was the greatest invention that there ever was. And he did talk a lot of rubbish sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> What's the most impressive thing you can cook? Um, so what do I cook? Last time I cooked, my, last night I had sardines on toast. I cooked okay. bread. Um, I do scrambled eggs, which are not difficult. Uh, I cook hamburgers. I cook, I suppose my best cook thing is barbecue. I'm quite well known for doing a very good barbecue. My father did a barbecue before barbecues were really a thing. Yeah. Uh, I really have learned to do a good barbecue. There's a fine art to that. Well, yeah, I've learned not to burn things. Okay, that's a good starting point. What are you most proud of in your career so far? Well, the fact that I uh, I bought H Samuel, I think, was the best. Was a great put us on the road to to really a big retailer from being a sort of very small one. The acquisition of H Samuel pushed us immediately into the big time. So that and that was a very difficult acquisition to do because everybody wanted H Samuel because they owned all their freeholds and uh, the the family owned over 50% of the shares. So that was a very difficult business to acquire. It took me quite a devious method of doing it. Do you want to tell us about the devious method or is that best 
best left? No, I can, I can tell you. I, I uh, promised the, chair, the chairman of H. Samuel that he'd be chairman of a combined group and uh, made him the chairman and then fired him three months later. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> they came back to haunt me because I was fired by my own chairman as well. So they, I was going to say, it's a fickle friend, that kind of scheme. Yeah, yeah. They live by the sword, die by the sword. Absolutely. If you could learn one new skill, what would it be? Sword fighting, presumably. <laughs> <laughs> one new skill, what would it be? New language? Piano? Yeah. Oh, piano. God, I love music. So I'm a bit old to do, learn a new school. You can't really teach an old dog new tricks. <laughs> if you could be one age forever, what would it be and why? One age forever? Well, I suppose I'm now 71. I'm the happiest I've ever been. So I know I don't look happy. That's my face. I can't help <laughs> it. But uh, so 71, there's nothing wrong with being 71, you know? No, my father's 71 and I think he'd agree with you. Oh, right. Okay. It really annoys me when people keep saying their father's my age. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, no, I mean, I weigh uh, 11 stone. You're a lot healthier than him. I'll, I'll tell you that then. That might make you feel I'm, better. I'm healthier than most 71-year-olds. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, health is, I've learned the importance of health because some of my friends have not been that healthy lately. So, of course. yeah, I love being healthy and I can do what I like. and. Um, People seem to like old people these days. They're yeah. nice. Did they not like them at one point? Well, I didn't like them when I was young. <laughs> <laughs> they got on my nerves. But now that I'm older, uh, I find that people, you know, like, oh, hello, dear, you know, let me help you with this and that, even though I don't need any help on anything like that. Um, you know, people are just... They have certain respect for people now, I think, that are older. Where they Quite do. right. I hope so. What have you done recently for the first time? Oh, right. So what I've done recently in lockdown, which I've never done before, is I've shucked oysters. Wow. That's good. Yeah. So I like oysters. So obviously you can't have them in a the restaurant. So I've ordered them online. And I thought, oh, I'd never be able to shut them, so I did that. Did you have a chainmail glove? No, I didn't have a glove, but I had a proper instrument. Yeah. And then you put a cloth over the oyster, and you have to... The thing about solving a problem is my problem in the past has always been I've rushed in. I don't think. I just do it. Mm. And I don't... But with an oyster, you have to look for that little opening. You have to take your time, make yourself comfortable... And then go for it once you've found that opening. And then you put it, the thing in, the knife in, and it opens quite nicely. But they, the old Gerald would just get the knife and just chuck, you know, go into it wherever it was and get on, you know, have no patience. But in lockdown, you take your time and you do things like that. I've even syringed my own ears for the first wow. time instead of going to the doctors. Incredible. Two very diverse skills there, but both requiring patience. Absolutely. So if, you know, I can't do any more speaking, I can get a job shucking oysters in a kitchen. <laughs> it may be an idea, yet. Yeah. What's your most treasured possession? Mm, well, my, my dog is now 12 and a half, and uh, I've realised that, you know, he's had this limp that's come and gone, and I've realised he won't be with me forever. And he's been a big success in the lockdown, as have dogs generally. 
course. They've been the heroes. People have appreciated them for the first time. How wonderful they are, what good company they are. And that, um, you know, all they want is just love and food. So, you know, I do tend to prefer animals to people. There you are, getting myself into trouble again. Which book has influenced you the most? You can plug your own again if you like. <laughs> well, I wouldn't plug my own book, no. We'll do that for you. Um, there's a book called um, by Scott E. M. Peck called The Road Less Travelled. And the first line of that book is, life is difficult. If you accept that, it's no longer difficult. Wow. That's influenced me because I've accepted that life is difficult and it's no longer difficult. Wow. You felt that firsthand, of course. Yeah, I really have. I've had a difficult, you know, difficult things happen to me, Uh, not least, you know, at the Albert Hall that day, but two two or three other things. And uh, when those things happen now, I think, well, that is life. I've got to accept that uh, I'm not going to sail through life, you know, without things happening. And now when a lot of people are complaining about this lockdown, uh, they're the sort of people who often, you know, have not had setbacks and can't deal with them. The reason that I have found this lockdown very easy is because I'm used to, uh, I was isolating before it was a thing. I'm used to setbacks. I'm used to disasters. I can deal with them. Finally, what is your idea of happiness? If you can paint us the picture, when is Gerald happiest? You know, a lot of days I'm happy for no reason and I'm not happy for no reason. That is the human nature. Mm. Um, You're not going to be happy every day. But I'm happy when I do exercise. I I just think exercise makes you happy. And I've learned that that is a brilliant thing. And I've become a little bit addicted during this lockdown to it because I cycle 25 miles in the morning, I walk an hour and a half, and I do weights as well. When I'm feeling low, I do exercise and it makes me happy. So um, I'm into exercise. I I just think it's uh, the greatest medicine that's ever been invented. Quite right too. Gerald Ratner, thank you so much. Pleasure. Well, if you enjoyed that episode of the Gentleman's Journal podcast, you'll almost certainly love the Gentleman's Journal magazine, the world's finest dispatch from the front line of luxury, entrepreneurship and style. In fact, lucky podcast listeners like you now get 20% off our annual subscription. Just enter the code POD20 at thegentlemansjournal.com to find out more.